0: losing weight to gain control. Today's episode, Metabolic Health with Dr. Casey Means. Welcome to today's episode of the Losing Weight to Gain Control podcast, and this is Gwen Alexander, your host, and today we have a special guest with us. We have Dr. Casey Means, and Dr. Means is a Stanford-trained physician, chief medical officer, and co-founder of the Metabolic Health Company Levels, and associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. Her mission is to maximize human potential and reverse the epidemic of preventable chronic disease. By empowering individuals with tech-enabled tools that can inform smart, personalized, and sustainable dietary and lifestyle choices. She is an award-winning biomedical researcher with past research positions at the NIH, Stanford School of Medicine, and NYU. So, Dr. Means, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Gwen. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Good. Um, I, I was so glad when uh, your your team reached out to me about having you on the podcast because I have done a few episodes about insulin and how that affects your eating and you know weight loss or weight gain. But I try to go from the limited knowledge I have, and I'm not a medical doctor, it's not my specialty. But I think you what you're going to talk about today is going to help a lot of people understand better how their blood glucose levels can affect not just your weight, but just your overall health. So what I'd like you to do is just tell the audience how what led you to get into the medical field that you're in now and get into starting levels?
1: Sure, absolutely. So what got me into metabolic health really, um, it's kind of a circuitous route. To be honest, I actually after medical school, I trained as a head and neck surgeon. So I was practicing head and neck surgery, which is treating the diseases of the ear, nose and throat primarily. And After about four and a half years of my training in this after medical school, I sort of stepped back and I I stepped back and I realized, oh my goodness, so many of the conditions I'm treating are actually fundamentally rooted in chronic inflammation. So things like sinusitis, laryngitis, thyroiditis, all these itises, that's the suffix that means chronic inflammation. And I stepped back and said, you know, we're we're throwing a lot of steroids, a lot of medications, a lot of steroids, I'm sorry, a lot of steroids, a lot of medications, a lot of surgeries at these conditions, but we're not actually stepping back and asking like, what is the root cause of the inflammation? Inflammation is fundamentally the body being triggered, thinking that there's a threat that it needs to fight against. And so what are these triggers that are causing the body to be in threat mode? And so when you look into that a little bit more deeply, we know that chronic inflammation can be generated from a lot of the daily choices we're making in regards to diet and lifestyle. One of the key fundamental triggers of inflammation in the body is high blood sugar and metabolic dysfunction. And this is something that unfortunately is very, very difficult to escape in our, in our modern world. Recent research suggests that 88% of Americans have some element of metabolic dysfunction, some biomarker of poor metabolism, and only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. And this is likely... The root cause of so many of the chronic conditions that are killing Americans today, um, as well as just many of the symptoms that we're dealing with that make normal daily life more difficult. So blood sugar, high blood sugar, metabolic dysfunction, key driver of inflammation, also things like lack of sleep, um, lack of adequate, adequate sleep, which there's an epidemic of, of not adequate sleep right now. People are not getting enough chronic low-grade stress, um, and even being sedentary, so not moving enough. These can all be triggers of inflammation in the body. So it became really imperative to me to sort of step back from my, my surgical career and think, you know, if I, if I really want to help people feel empowered to make decisions in their life that will minimize chronic inflammation and maybe have an impact on a lot of these, these conditions that I'm treating in ear, nose and throat, you know, maybe that's where I should be sort of focusing on time. So I shifted my clinical energy into thinking through how to how to help patients make these healthier decisions and choices every day that are foundational for metabolic health. And not only do that for the individual patient, but how do we scale these solutions? If we have 74% of Americans with overweight or obesity, we have 128 million Americans with diabetes or prediabetes, 88% of Americans with metabolic dysfunction based on the study I, I had just mentioned nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the U.S. are related in some way to dysregulated blood sugar, sugar levels. If this is all the case, then what I realized I wanted to focus on in my medical career was helping with blood sugar, helping people get that blood sugar under control and do this through through scalable solutions that could affect you know, big populations. Uh, and so that's what drove me to start Levels, which um, ultimately is the first tool to allow The average individual to know exactly how their food and lifestyle choices are affecting their glucose levels and their health in real time. And the first tool that allows us to close the loop on nutrition in general, to know this is what I ate and this is exactly what it did, uh, to my body. And with that information, I think it arms people to make easier choices, consistent choices that generate health. And, you know, circling back, ideally, in the long run, would would help keep them out of the operating room. So that's sort of my journey and how I got to starting uh, levels.
0: Did any of your patients, did you try with them before you got involved with levels of trying to get them to to change their behaviors, like behavior modification to help them with the symptoms that they were having?
1: I did, you know, it was so after sort of coming to a lot of these realizations, I, I, when I left surgery, I actually first started my own private practice and it was very different than my surgical practice. I kind of created what I would consider the practice of my dreams. I was like, if I want to make people healthy, what does that have to look like? And it was radically different than surgery. So I was spending, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes with patients when I was in my surgical training, um, seeing 30, 40 patients a day sometimes. And in my practice, the new practice I created, I was spending two hours with people. And I was focusing deeply on, you know, what was driving them to make choices that were leading to, you know, poor health. What were the barriers in their lives that were stopping them from making healthier choices and really focusing on behavior change and coaching. And I did give continuous glucose monitors to a lot of patients and was reviewing that data with them intensively to say, okay, like you ate this food and this is exactly what happened to your glucose. So this might not be the best option for you, or we should pair this carbohydrate with other things like protein or fat or fiber to help minimize the glucose spike. Or when you got less sleep, your glucose seemed to be higher. Maybe we need to focus on getting higher quality sleep. So I was doing all of this in a very, very high touch way. And that's sort of part of what drove me to realize, okay, this is an effective tool. It's really useful, but this is a lot of one-to-one energy with people to help them understand this data. And I think that a tool like a digital tool could actually do this for me, like this could do it better than I could do it. So that's, that's what Levels is. Levels is the software on top of a continuous glucose monitor data stream that takes that data from this wearable sensor and interprets it for people. It makes it super easy to understand, makes it actionable and does what I was doing in my own practice, but in a, in a way that's much more efficient and more real time and ultimately, like I mentioned, scalable to to larger populations. So that that transition into my own sort of practice using continuous glucose monitors and it helping people intensively improve their their lifestyle and behaviors and diet to improve metabolic health is what kind of got me to build that that product.
0: I couldn't imagine spending two hours with my doctor. I mean, it would be nice, but I know they have to, like you said, get the patients through. And I think a lot of what you said about behavior modification is huge. I've had to adjust my, you know, I have lupus also. I was diagnosed a few years ago and actually this past year, I cleaned up my eating a lot more. I say cleaned up. It's not, you know, like probably the definition of clean eating, but one of the things you talked about with the blood blood sugar levels, I actually adjusted what I eat in the morning because I noticed I felt so sluggish still. I mean, Mm -hmm. I didn't, I don't, I mean, it just, was so bad that I thought I need to adjust something. So I switched to a different type of meal in the morning and big difference. I feel a whole lot better. When I, I feel more awake. I, my body doesn't feel, like you said, inflamed. And it's mm-hmm. not just the lupus. I, I would feel puffy and, and things like that. Can, can you tell our listeners what are some of the symptoms they might notice if they are having insulin issues? It's not diabetic, but maybe their, their blood sugar isn't where it probably should be for them that's optimal. What kind of symptoms they would see?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it kind of can be different for everyone, to be honest, and sort of backing up a little bit, if that's okay, like I would just say, first and foremost, like what is what is metabolism, and and that will help kind of lead into discussion of like symptoms that people might see. So fundamentally, our metabolism is how we produce uh, energy from our food in our environment, we take in food, we have to convert it in our bodies into something that our bodies can use for energy. So there's this conversion process. And when that process is not happening efficiently, we can't make energy for our body. And that process is co-opted by unhealthy diets, especially diets, high in refined carbohydrates and sugars. Because what happens is when we're, we're giving our body all this energy source as glucose and carbohydrates, but we're actually not able to convert it properly to energy we can use. And the reason for that is because elevated blood glucose in, in the body, blood sugar, high blood sugar that causes our body to release insulin. Okay. And insulin is that hormone from the pancreas that tells glucose to be taken up from the blood into the cells. So it helps get the sugar out of the the bloodstream into the cells so it can be converted. When that process happens over and over, where you spike glucose, spike blood sugar, and then you spike insulin, over time, the body actually becomes numb to that signal of insulin and it becomes resistant to insulin. And it says, we're trying to shove way too much sugar into the cells. There's way too much insulin around. We're going to actually block more sugar from coming into the cells because it's too much. So then what happens is you have a lot of energy in the bloodstream in the form of blood sugar and refined you know, carbohydrates that turn into blood sugar, but you can't get it into the body to the cells to be able to actually be used. And that's fundamentally what insulin resistance is. The body overcompensates then by producing more insulin and saying, we're going to shove that blood sugar into the cells. So we're going to produce more insulin to get it into the cells. And so what you end up getting essentially this vicious cycle of rising insulin levels, rising glucose levels in the blood. And this causes so, so many problems. And the downstream result is that our bodies are not getting enough energy in the cells to function. Every single, we have trillions of cells in the body and every single one needs that energy to function. And when it's not happening properly, we see breakdown of tissues and breakdown of tissues leads to symptoms. And wherever that's happening in the body is what the symptom is going to look like. So you can imagine if you're not getting energy properly in the brain, because the brain is insulin resistant, that could look like any brain symptom. It could look like neurodegeneration, Alzheimer's dementia. It could look like general brain fog. It could look like chronic pain fibromyalgia. It could look like chronic fatigue syndrome. It could look like a mood issue, like depression and anxiety. All of those conditions I just mentioned associated with the brain are associated with blood sugar dysregulation cuz you know if if the brain's not getting energy it could look like so many different things if that's happening in the ovary it could look like infertility polycystic ovarian syndrome leading cause of infertility in the country is insulin resistance of the ovaries if it's happening in the penis it could look like erectile dysfunction the the well established cause of of that problem is blood vessels being clogged basically vascular dysfunction caused by high blood sugar. If it's happening in the litter liver, it could look like chronic fatty liver disease. If it's happening in the heart. It could look like heart disease or, in uh, or in the blood vessels, it could look like stroke. All of these conditions are rooted in dysregulated blood sugar. And that's because this energy deficit is showing up in different places, which can look like different symptoms. But the way I like to visualize it, it's like, this metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance and high blood sugar levels, uncontrolled blood sugar levels is the trunk of a tree with like all these branches that look different, but it's actually rooted in large part by a very similar root cause. So, so to answer your question, it's, it's, it's hard to say exactly what it's going to look like for one person, because it could look like many, many different things. Um, but there are some key indicators. One is that if there's excess weight, if someone is is struggling with overweight or obesity, that's pretty much a clear sign that there's some problem with insulin because going back to our story about insulin and insulin driving glucose from the bloodstream into the cells, the other purpose of insulin, other than taking up blood sugar from the bloodstream is that it stops us from burning fat for energy. It's a signal to the body that, oh, we have tons of energy in the form of sugar. We don't need to burn fat for energy. Those are our two forms of energy that we have in the body, fat and sugar. If insulin's high, it's a signal that we don't need to burn fat. So when we keep our insulin high because of the way we're eating, that is a blocker on fat burning. And that of course leads to excess weight. So one of the key things that we can do to bring that weight down is start to control our insulin levels and insulin levels tend to rise and be higher. And we tend to develop insulin resistance probably over a decade before our blood sugar actually changes because we can overcompensate. We can just keep producing more insulin to keep our blood sugar looking okay. When really we're just like going down this path of metabolic dysfunction. So insulin resistance proceeds blood sugar changes. But the more we can keep our glucose stable and low day after day, the more we'll keep our insulin lower day after day, and the more we'll improve our insulin sensitivity. And as we keep our insulin levels low, we unlock fat burning. So long story short, people dealing with excess weight, that would be a signal that maybe blood sugar is something you want to focus on. The second thing generally I would say is people who are having kind of variability throughout their day. If your mood is all over the place during the day, if your energy is all over the place during the day, if your cognitive performance, like brain fog is kind of up and down throughout the day, mood, energy, cognitive performance, I would I would think about blood sugar. Um, you had mentioned that your breakfast... You know you changed your breakfast and you it, it changed the way you kind of experienced your morning you, you you felt more energy well i think we see this all the time we're eating foods that we think are healthy and we're trying our best you know i, I think oatmeal is a great example a lot of people eat oatmeal for breakfast because they think oh it's a heart healthy food and oh it's got whole grains and the box make it makes it look so healthy but but if you actually you know, check your blood sugar for a lot of people, it might be causing a very high glucose spike leading to that whole cascade of things that I just spoke about. And there's a lot of people out there who at 11am every morning are like, I need to have my second cup of coffee, or I'm having a little bit of a anxiety moment or a little post, you know, mid morning slump. And they think, Oh, it's because I didn't, my I didn't have enough coffee, or I didn't sleep well, or I got a stressful email. But then if you actually see, okay, I have a continuous glucose monitor on, I ate oatmeal, my glucose spiked super high and then it came crashing down and that's exactly when i started feeling tired maybe it's my breakfast maybe this is not a healthy food for my body and everyone responds to carbohydrates differently in terms of how they affect your glucose so knowing personally how a food is affecting you can change everything and um you know i've seen a lot of people transition from an oatmeal breakfast to something more like avocado, and eggs, and just which is going to have virtually no glucose spike, because there's very little carbohydrates in that. And their whole morning transforms, because when glucose is stable, a lot of these other things in our lives stabilize as well. So I think variability in glucose often maps on to variability in our day to day experience. And the more stable our glucose stable and low our glucose levels are, the more I think our mood, our energy, our cognitive performance is going to be stable as well. It's certainly not the panacea for those things. When you stabilize glucose, it doesn't mean you're just going to have like the perfect mood and you know yeah. the perfect energy, but it is really a good start.
0: I'm glad you you mentioned about oatmeal because that's generally, like you said, looked at as a healthy food. And when somebody tells you, oh, here's what you should eat to be healthy, or even like fruit, and I I usually say, hey, you might want to still watch that because I don't I don't like to tell people, well, here's what I I ate to lose my weight and here's the plan you know, I like to try and guide them. Okay, let's figure out what would work for you. Maybe what I can eat, like you said, what might spike your blood sugar to the point where you're just all over the place. And for me, it doesn't do anything. I'm fine when I eat that type of food. And that's what I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Do you think if more doctors would actually try to talk to their patients about that type of behavior modification that it might work or do you think patients still want the give me a pill or to fix the one symptom I don't want to change have you experienced that
1: I think that people by and large want to be as healthy as possible and I think by and large they want to they are people are trying to do their best with the information they have available to them unfortunately the information that we're getting is really bad (laughs) we have Um, a lot of confusion in the nutrition space we have, you know, you go on Instagram or the internet and you see people all over the spectrum in terms of nutrition dogma, you have vegan carnivore, paleo, keto, Everyone saying it's the only diet for health. It's very confusing. You've got, you know, millions of Americans going on diets each year. And most of the scientific research shows that diets do not by and large work. You've got doctors telling you one thing about nutrition, the government telling you one thing about nutrition and the reality is, is that there's probably a different optimal diet for everyone and it's probably different even at different times in your life and you know based on what your health status is at the current point in time so it's wildly confusing couple this with a food marketing culture that is highly unregulated claims are rampant and don't really need to be proven before you make a claim the claims are very one size fits all when really there's so much biochemical individuality involved and And so you go into the store and it's like almost like everything's marketed as healthy. This bar is healthy. This cereal is healthy. People put claims about individual ingredients, but don't actually like you can say that something's heart healthy because it has whole grains in it, but then it has a ton of refined sugar in it. So that information is bad. And then we have a political culture that also is reinforcing, you know, poor food decisions. We have doctors who are really slammed for time because of the way healthcare is reimbursed you've got 10 to 15 minutes with a patient who may have four, five, six chronic conditions that have to be gone through it's a lot easier to manage and and prescribe than it is to to deeply talk about the the psychology and the nuances of nutrition or lifestyle and the barriers to those things in an individual's life and then you've got political factors so things like our farm bills so our farm bills are you know these multi-billion dollar investments from the gover- government to basically stabilize the price of crops over time. But un- unfortunately, in an effort to um, stabilize crop prices for farmers, what we've done is invest in some of the foods that are most disease promoting in the country, things like wheat and soy and corn, the majority of which are turned into feed for animals in you know mass agriculture, industrial animal raising and sort of poor quality meats, or it's refined into refined corn oil, refined soy oil or high fructose corn syrup. So we've got subsidized foods that are bad for health and that are disproportionately affecting people of lower socioeconomic status and the people, you know, who 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 need access to healthy food the most. And so it's just a huge web of systemic and cultural factors that make it that we have bad information. So I don't think it's doctors not having faith in their patients. I think it's just a very complex set of issues that we're just unfortunately caught in the middle of. And because of that, because of all the interests at play, we become humans become the product. We become the thing. People are buying our, you know, companies are vying for our dollars basically. And we are unfortunately lost in that shuffle. So my premise and levels premise is that if we can give people access to information about their own body, what is my body doing? You break through a lot of the marketing claims. You break through a lot of the confusion. You just have an answer. You eat oatmeal, you see how it affects you. You know if it's a heart-healthy food for you or not. And that question, you never really have to answer it again. Um, And so it just cuts through a lot of the craziness that I think is driving just systems-wide issues. So my hope is that if people had more access to their own information and could interpret it well, we'd actually see a shift in consumer choices. We'd see a shift in what patients are expecting of their doctors. And we'd actually see things sort of shift from the bottom up. But I think it's rooted in in bad information, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, like you said, um, a lot of what I've learned over the years has been just reading and trying things out on myself. But you have to really dig sometimes to get through that, like how you're advertised to by the food industry, understand they're a business. They need to make money. But the the way that they're advertising to us makes it almost where you're just not going to win. A a cookie is considered breakfast. Have you seen breakfast cookies?
1: Oh, I've seen them. Yeah. And I I mean, pastries are considered breakfast. No, they're not. (laughs) You know, but like, it's just you walk into the store and you, you actually could think like, oh, this is a breakfast food when in fact it's a dessert, you know? And so, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not putting
0: down anybody if you're listening and you every morning you have to have your donut. But for me, I had to change my way of thinking of what was considered a healthy type of food. Because at one time I was just focusing on the calories and a donut, I can tell you how many calories, fat, carbs are in a donut. But then I got to the point of it doesn't make me feel the best. I would feel sluggish after having that and a big cup of orange juice with my donut. So, you know, once I learned that, and I think for many of us, that's kind of how the process goes. You know, we start at the place of listening to the outside forces of what is healthy. And then we kind of figure it out for ourselves once we get more information. But like you said, it's getting that information and which information do you trust when you hear
1: it? Mm-hmm. I think that's that's all such great points. And I think the you're seeing a big shift now in this paradigm that we've had of like, it's all about calories, you know, that a calorie is a calorie. We've heard that, you know, many times it's all about, you know, calories in versus calorie out, but in a lot of the research studies, we're finding that that type of model doesn't actually lead to sustained weight loss. And that's where really this hormonal aspect of weight loss is starting to take more front seat in this discussion, which is that a calorie that stimulates a hormonal response like an insulin response is going to have a different effect on your ability to lose weight or burn fat than a calorie that doesn't cause an insulin response. So that calorie might have the same amount of molecular energy in it. That's how calories are defined, you know, like a unit of energy. But one is going to stimulate a hormonal cascade and one is not. And so that's I think something key that's that's shifting is our understanding of that. So that's that's one thing, you know, and I think the other thing is is that, you know, I think a lot of people associate diets with like deprivation and that this is this is hard and this is gonna take away something that brings me a lot of a lot of pleasure. And especially when you're not even really sure if that thing is causing a problem, it, it's easy to just sort of be like, okay, I'm gonna keep eating the donut. Like doesn't seem to be causing a problem. It's this many calories, which is fine on my diet and you know, whatnot. But I think having that little piece of extra information, like, okay, I can see exactly what it's doing to me. Just gives people at least informed decision making with that process. Maybe it's not causing a big spike for them. Okay. You know, but it it at least gives you a little bit more entryway into like understanding what's really happening.
0: I wanted to ask you also, you know, we were talking about uh, food and how the CGM monitors your glucose, but have you found or in any of your research that the time of day you eat certain food makes a difference? Because I noticed for me, I actually did adjust. Uh, A few years ago, like what I ate for lunch, I noticed certain foods when I would get back to my desk, I was ready just to go to sleep. And I thought I can't keep doing this anymore because I would eat sandwiches or, you know, things with lots of rice. And so I stopped. That's done. No, I don't eat sandwiches anymore for lunch or or really carb heavy meals. I, I, you know, like I'd eat a protein vegetable and maybe I might have a little dessert. I like my desserts, but they're (laughs) ones I made and so I've controlled what goes in them, you know, and how much of it. But does does is there something to that depending on what time of day you eat certain foods?
1: There is. Yeah. And it's so generally speaking, carbohydrates eaten earlier in the day are gonna have less of a glucose response than carbohydrates eaten like at, at night. And the reason for that in part is because we tend to be a little bit more insulin resistant at night, just naturally. When we actually before we Go to sleep, Our body releases this hormone melatonin. Um some people actually take melatonin as a supplement to help them go to sleep. And this actually blocks the pancreas, which makes insulin from from making insulin and makes our body a little bit insulin resistant. So basically, the same amount of carbohydrates late at night because of this effect are going to stick around in the bloodstream longer because you're not actually able to take that glucose up as effectively. So there's been some studies looking at like eating the exact same meal first thing in the morning versus late at night, and there seems to be lower glucose response. First thing in the morning. I think something else to keep in mind is this idea of sort of feeding windows, like how how long we're eating throughout the day. So, if we are eating from eight a.m. to eight p.m. at night, that's twelve hours worth of eating, which means twelve hours of potentially you know spiking insulin, and and every time that insulin spiking, we're blocking our ability to burn fat. So let's say you you're eating pretty much all day, which is like the average American breakfast, lunch, and dinner maybe 8am to 8pm with a few snacks in between, you can imagine you're just going up and down all day. And basically your glucose, your insulin and glucose are staying kind of high throughout the whole day. Now imagine that you just ate between 11am and 5pm, but the exact same amount of calories, Well, you're going to get those same glucose spikes, but it's going to be in a much narrower window. So you're going to have all this extra time outside of that feeding window where your insulin and your glucose are low, which means that you're actually burning through the glucose in your body for energy, And you may actually start tapping into fat burning. And so so condensing the amount of time we're eating per day into a shorter window has been shown to be healthy. And that's kind of behind this whole concept of time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting that's becoming more popularized. And I think one of the reasons why that's been shown to be somewhat effective for weight loss is because you do end up creating more time when you're in a lower insulin state and can tap into to fat for fuel, which is ultimately what's going to burn off some of the extra stored fat that is extra, extra weight. So that's just two, two things relating to timing of food that I think are, are relevant.
0: Yeah, that was uh, one thing that I, I actually adjusted to. I was going to ask you about the intermittent, intermittent fasting, because that has been something that's been pretty prominent. And I know a lot of people are doing it. And I've somewhat done it, you know like you said, I've shortened the window of when I usually eat, and i i i my I, I've been going mostly on fuel because I don't have a I didn't have the technology to tell me, but I could tell that I did feel better when I shortened my window of when I'm consuming my food mm-hmm. and and so I thought, well, I guess there's something to this, but I like to hear that you said, yeah, there is a correlation between this because sometimes like like we were talking about the information we get there's nothing to back it up it's just You feel like somebody's throwing it out there and is this something that really, really can work?
1: Yeah. And I think also just one of the reasons I love continuous glucose monitoring and seeing this data throughout the day is because you when you're fasting, you know, let's say you stop eating at 5 PM and you're not gonna eat the next day till eleven AM, you can see your glucose levels come down and stabilize. And that's a really powerful sort of reward to see like, okay, I'm making a decision that is it feels hard. I mean, I know that when I stop eating early in the night. Like it's hard. I want to snack late at night. I want to eat later at night. Like that's my natural impulse. But when I can see that what I'm doing is actually having a positive impact, it's actually doing something. I think it's really, it's, it's, it helps motivate me. And I think others to just keep going, like just have to stick with it overnight and seeing a big, let's say I, I cave and at 11 PM have a snack, you see that spike and you know that that spike is taking you out of, you know, that probably that fat burning and is raising the insulin. And it might actually impair sleep quality. We know that glucose spikes like late at night can cause problems with sleep. it It can elevate your body temperature, which makes sleep harder. Your glucose can kind of bounce around throughout the night uh, and cause sort of arousal throughout the night, like waking up a little bit. Um and so having stable glucose throughout the night can really help with sleep. So it's just nice to have that source of information to know like what I'm doing is actually doing something. and I know if that I, if I go off course, like I'm going to get some negative feedback here and like know that it's impairing my goal of, of good sleep.
0: What kind of numbers should somebody be shooting for with their glucose? I know everybody's different, but is there a standard like, you know, you need to be between this, this number and this number in order to, was it feel your best or where doctors won't be concerned about you?
1: Yeah, so there are standard criteria of what the, like what the American Diabetes Association sort of recommends for, for healthy glucose levels. And so just I'll run through those briefly. So the three tests that we use to diagnose whether people have like a objective blood sugar problem is fasting glucose, uh, what's called an oral glucose tolerance test, and what's called a hemoglobin A1C. So fasting glucose is like you haven't eaten for eight hours, it's first thing in the morning, and you get a fingerprint glucose and see what your glucose levels are. And if that value is less than 100 milligrams per deciliter, you're considered normal and non-diabetic. If that's between 100 and 125, it's considered pre diabetes. And if it's 126 or above, it's considered diabetes. Then, oral glucose tolerance test is another test for diabetes where basically they have you drink a glucose drink with 75 grams of glucose and then take your blood sugar for two hours after that drink and see how you kind of went up and came down. And if after two hours your blood sugar is below 140 milligrams per deciliter, you're considered normal. Doesn't matter how high you went during the test, just as long as you're under 140 two hours after the test. And then Hemoglobin A1C is a test where it's actually a blood test looking at like three month average of blood sugar, and the way they can do that is because blood sugar uh, sticks to red blood cells in the bloodstream, and you can take red blood cells and kind of see how much sugar they have stuck to them, and that's a marker of three month glucose levels. So if the percentage of red blood cell as uh, w- red blood cells hemoglobin um, with sugar on it is less than five point seven percent, basically you're considered normal, and so. Anyways, so that's, that's sort of like the standard criteria, but that doesn't actually really tell us what is like necessarily optimal for people. It tells us like that you're not in a clinically diagnosable range, but doesn't tell us really what to shoot for. So I've definitely, I've done a really extensive review of the literature and looked at like, well, what, what would we want to actually shoot for to stay in a good range? And for fasting glucose, I think it's probably a much tighter range. It's probably more between like 72 and 85. That would be optimal, not just anything under hundred and the reason we know that is because if you look at studies of people in the normal range, so under 100, as people go from the low end of normal to the high end of normal, so like from around 70 to 100 milligrams per deciliter, you see just this linear increase between their in their risk of disease, of future disease. So at the higher end of normal, you see higher risk for diabetes in the future, higher risk for heart disease and stroke. And if you stay down below 85 You're in the lowest risk for ever developing diabetes or stroke or heart disease, heart attack, things like that. So I look at that data and I say, okay, well I'd like to stay in that lower range. So why not shoot for better than less than 100? Why not shoot for less than 85, Um, which is totally achievable? But unfortunately, most people are going to walk in their doctor's office. They could have a glucose level of 99, a fasting glucose, and their doctor says, oh, you're fine, you're non-diabetic, you're fine. When in fact we should be saying, hey, you're 99, but studies show that under 85 is going to be a lot better for your health. Another thing I think you know worth worth mentioning is that you know our post meal levels, getting up to a blood glucose level of 140 after meals, which the oral glucose tolerance test would tell us that being at 142 hours after a meal is normal. I, that's actually probably way too liberal there's been studies where they've put glucose monitors on really healthy young people and looked at their glucose values over 24 hour periods. And if you do that, you find that the majority of people never really go above 120. So the idea that we should ever be getting close to 140 is a little bit crazy. We should probably be sticking somewhere between 70 and 120, like all the time and rarely ever going above 120. We know above that, you know, you're going to have a bigger insulin spike. You're going to have a higher blood sugar, which can cause problems. And so Kind of sticking to that tighter, narrow range is probably better for health. But there are no standard criteria to that that a doctor is going to say for that type of thing right now. And that's just because I think like we've mostly focused on disease states in our modern in our in our medical system. We haven't really focused on these healthy populations, these preclinical populations. But I think focusing energy on those populations before you develop these issues is a really um, high value thing to do. And kind of circling back to what I said earlier about how our bodies can overcompensate with insulin for years and years and years before we actually see blood sugar going up. So you just, if you just keep pumping out insulin in higher and higher levels, it's going to drive that glucose, that sugar out of the bloodstream into the cells and make your glucose look like it's okay. When in fact you're becoming more and more insulin resistant. So By the time someone's glucose starts to rise and their lab values start to come abnormal, they've probably had insulin resistance and metabolic problems for over 10 10 years. And so that's another reason why someone who comes in with a blood glucose, a fasting glucose of like 99, they might be considered normal by a glucose standard, but almost unquestionably that person has insulin resistance and they are super close to just like falling into that, that higher risk category. So I would think that over the next few years we're going to see doctors orienting more around lab markers of insulin sensitivity and less about glucose levels because that's the precursor to changes in glucose levels
0: this is something i wish that they would actually teach to to kids in like high school or even young you know teach it to the young kids on their level because i remember when i was in high school which was many years ago uh <laughs> you know, we would go to the get the, the candy bars and the, the potato chips, not thinking about what that's doing to your body. I just, I knew it tasted good. And I didn't feel too great after, but boy, it was so good. But if we could explain it to them in a way where, you know, they understand like, this is going to affect you, not just when you're 16, but when you're 21, then when you're 31. And then when you're in your 40s, like many women in my, I'm in my 40s, we get to the point where like, what happened? You know, we can't do all cardio exercise, and our body responds. You know, or even the way we eat sometimes—it's—it's—it's it's, it's like a major overhaul. And I think a lot of that's because of what we, have like you said, done our bodies over the years and what we put in that we didn't think about it at that time.
1: I think it's so true. And I mean, my personal experience—like, I was very overweight as a child. I loved food so much. I was well over two hundred pounds when I was in eighth grade, and I, you know, and it's—I was, what's what I'm sort of looking back, I'm like, I wish I'd known a lot of this, even at that age, I knew a lot about it. I was reading about nutrition in magazines, I thought I, you know, everything was about low fat, then, yeah. you know, and it, yeah, which totally caused problems, because when we went low fat as a culture in the 90s, what happened was we filled foods with sugar. And that was one of the biggest mistakes we ever made in terms of a scientific community and community recommendations. Cause ultimately, that's that increase in sugar during the low fat movement is what's driven a lot of our problems today. And certainly mine as a child. And, you know, in high school or, or late middle school, thinking about some of the things that were I was struggling with, like acne and like, you know, PMS and things like mood, you know, a young teenager, like, you know, anxiety and angst and things like that. And I remember being so sore after my, my sports practices, you know, my joints would hurt and, and just all these things. And, you know, I, I I used to get low back pain all the time when I would, and I'm like, this is crazy that this was considered, everyone is doing this, you know, people, and you just take Advil for things and you know, whatever, it's all normal, but it's not normal. Like none of it is normal. And if someone had told me like, Oh, Hey, if you get rid of all this processed food, you're getting at Costco, it actually will clear up most likely all of these things in one fell swoop who knows if i could have break broken that sort of addictive food pattern at that point but i sure as heck think it would have helped if someone had told me you know you don't need to be using all these acne medications like you can literally just focus on shifting your diet from this to this and it's still delicious you don't have to deprive any food you just have to change The amount of like refined sugars and carbohydrates and stuff. I think I would have done it, but I had no idea. And it's taken, you know, over twenty years, and even not even stuff I learned about in medical school to realize how much you know our nutrition is impacting so many aspects of our health. So yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. And I think it's uh you know so my my passion and my goal is to help people learn and understand and be empowered so that you know they're not going through life misattributing stuff that's happening to to maybe. You know the wrong things, and just and feel empowered. Some information to maybe make some slightly different choices.
0: Yeah, that's why I started this podcast was to get the message out of of being consistent. You know, making behavior modifications, dealing with your mental aspects of what could be driving you to eat certain foods that have the higher sugar. That was my motivation too. Mm. I wanted to ask you if somebody did want to get a continuous glucose monitor, is that something they can go to their doctor and say, "Hey, I want one," or is that something they can get themselves or how, how would someone go about getting one of those?
1: Yeah. So if people are, have a diagnosis of diabetes, um, so type 1 or type 2 diabetes, they should definitely go to their doctor and ask for the newest glucose monitor because it's going to be an opt- a much more optimal, efficient way to track your glucose as opposed to doing a finger prick where you have to lance your finger and use a meter to basically check your glucose. That's going to give you maybe like three or four readings a day. If you prick three or four times a day, but a continuous glucose monitor is going to take readings every 15 minutes, 24 hours a day, and send that information to your smartphone or to a small reader. If you don't have a smartphone, which can tell you your levels. So as opposed to getting like photographs of your glucose, you're getting a movie of your glucose, which is just so much more information for a non-diabetic individual who wants to just basically use this glucose feedback to optimize their diet and really help just sort of get their their diet and lifestyle really tuned up to help just improve their thriving, you know, maybe improve weight, um, but don't actually have a diagnosis of of diabetes. A a doctor is probably not going to prescribe this because we've been so trained in medicine to, you know, focus on not sort of, giving tools or advice unless people reach a fulminant disease state. So currently these devices are actually only FDA approved for type one and two type diabet- type one and type two diabetics. But as we've talked about this podcast, there's so many reasons why someone before they get to those that end part of the spectrum of metabolic dysfunction would, would benefit from this. Um, so levels, the purpose of our company is to expand access to these monitors to the, the more wellness population, the, the non-diabetic population. So our program is a one-month program of using continuous glucose monitoring to optimize your diet and lifestyle. It's intended for people without diabetes to be used as really a wellness tool for biofeedback. And so we actually have set up a telemedicine network of physicians who are evaluating people for these devices. And then we have a pharmacy that ships them to people if a prescription is generated. So this is actually an off-label use of an FDA-approved device. And off-label use basically just means that it's being used for an indication that it wasn't initially approved for, but where the ri- the benefits outweigh the risk. And this is a... Using a continuous glucose monitor is an extremely low-risk, painless device. And so the information you can get, um, you know, in, in my opinion... Far exceeds any any risk associated with wearing this small sensor on your arm. and so so that's really our mission of levels is to empower people, a new population of people who who can benefit from this this information. So certainly, you could go in and ask your doctor for one of these, even if you don't have diabetes and could kind of say, "I listened to this podcast and I heard all this stuff, and I really want to track my glucose. But I think there's a lot of doctors who are not going to really at this point understand that that benefit. But I think people are becoming more metabolically aware. And I think that over time, we're going to see doctors shifting to understanding the value of this type of uh, preventative information.
0: Well, Casey, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. And this was very informative to me. I hope it educated me even more. And I hope the listeners um, will get educated too. I know I love hearing numbers. I love hearing about percentages and I'm into the how things affect your body. And I think the more you know, the the better you better decisions that you can make but if someone does want to reach out to you if they have any questions or if they want to to uh, check out levels you know is there a website or social media that they can find you on and information about that
1: absolutely yeah so we're on twitter and instagram at levels and our website is levelshealth.com and we are trying to put out as high quality research based information as possible on our website so you can go to levelshealth.com/blog and read so much more about this from MDs, PhDs, um, guest experts. Uh, so highly recommend checking that out. I'm personally at Dr. Casey's kitchen, DR Casey's kitchen on Instagram and Twitter, and I'm actually plant-based whole foods, plant-based. And so I focus a lot on plant-based diets and metabolic health and glucose control and, and how that all relates. So would love to connect with anyone on those platforms for for people who do want to try, um, try out CGM and levels. Um, we're currently pre, pre-launch right now. We're in a beta program. So people can sign up on the website for our waitlist. And uh, we will be working really hard in 2021 to get um, everyone who wants access, uh, availability of the program.
0: Thank you again. And it was great having you on the podcast. Thanks, Gwen. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. The views of any guest on the podcast are their own. The host of this podcast is not a medical doctor, nurse, or health professional. You should consult with your doctor, nurse, or health professional before you begin any weight loss or maintenance or exercise program.